This episode is brought to you by the National Centre for Eating Disorders, the NCFED. Does eating rule your life? If you struggle with control of food, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you want to speak in confidence to someone who fully understands your relationship with food, contact Sam at the National Centre for Eating Disorders. You will find our details online or call 0845 838 2040. We know everything there is to know about eating distress and all our practitioners are properly trained. The first simple step is to have a no obligation assessment where you can speak freely in confidence to someone who understands and who will be able to tell you what is keeping you stuck. You will not need to do anything else if you simply want to think about what we have to say. If eating rules your life, Take that first brave step now and get in touch. 0845 838 during the week or look us up at www.eating-disorders.org.uk Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka The Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now before I launch into my episode today, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who is listening and who is supporting this podcast. I appreciate it so much. I do receive so many lovely messages from people all over the world who are listening in and it is quite incredible really and quite heartwarming and quite bizarre to think that so many people all over the world listen to this podcast and are supported and helped by it and I still haven't really quite got my brain around that and I am incredibly appreciative as well to all the guests that have been on and spoken and shared their story and talked about the work they do. I don't know if you can hear, like the rain is pouring down where I'm at the moment on a flat roof. So apologies if you can hear that in the background. But yeah, so thank you to all the guests. I just really want to say a huge, huge thank you to everyone who has been on and supported the podcast and it just makes it. And I feel like I am the kind of channel for the podcast almost, you know, I started it, I speak to people, I interview people, I get them on, but really it's become so much more than about me. And that is really wonderful because at the end of the day, the whole reason I wanted to start a podcast was to be able to reach lots of people and to hopefully inspire and motivate people that recovery is possible and lots more. So today I was due to have a guest, but due to some practical considerations we having some gas pipes laid in the close that I live in and I've had gas men in and out of the house and drilling holes in the wall and all sorts so it just wasn't very practical so I've decided to record a solo episode so I'm going to talk today a bit about diets diet culture how to shift your mentality around that how to get into a different space how you almost need to undergo this huge paradigm shift away from so many of the cultural views that views that are held and you know held very dearly and to step into a new lane when you're in recovery and i really recognize that as incredibly challenging incredibly challenging but is really possible and also massively liberating 
So let's talk a bit about dieting in Western culture. So the diet mentality values losing weight, slim body shape and body aesthetics over well-being and health. So weight loss tends to be praised regardless of the road taken to achieve this. And never mind if you end up getting an eating disorder. So many of my clients have said that they were praised so much for their bodies when they were in a really, really tricky place with food. And I just think this highlights how distorted and warped our culture is. And we have really confused wellness with equating sort of thinness and it's all become very tangled up. Whereas actually we know that many people that are underweight or too thin or on a losing weight are not in the most healthy place. So it's just so much bigger than that, isn't it? And we need to look at each individual person and what is healthy for them because losing weight in itself, okay, it can be helpful for some people, but actually in many, many instances, losing weight is not necessarily the path to health and wellness, but we often get all tangled up with this. So diet mentality is firmly ingrained in Western culture as a normal, and we tend not to question it. It's a given that Disney princesses are thin, people in the media tend to be in smaller bodies, and the diet plans are sold prolifically by multinational companies. Now we often just sort of just take all of this for granted, don't we? We don't even really question it. And I sometimes think it's almost like we have been indoctrinated with this way of thinking from birth. So so many of the messages we hold, the things that we believe are quite unconscious and have been passed on to us by, you know, the culture, by people in our families, passed down the generations, and we've just taken it all on board. We haven't really questioned it. It is very, very problematic. So questioning diet mentality, you know, beginning to kind of question if this is the way to be going, it can feel like an extraordinarily monumentous task to begin with because you have been inundated with these messages on how your body should look on media and films. Certain body types are represented far more than others. There's a pressure for women to be slim, small, lean, take up as little space as possible, whilst for men, a muscular physique. So there's a powerful subconscious message that losing weight is good with diets and wellness plans being such a normalized part of life. Now, thankfully, there is a powerful pushback against these old ideals and people are challenging these messages. The body positive movement is making strides, starting out as a movement for marginalized groups, but spreading into the mainstream. And we know as well that diets don't work for many people and intuitive eating principles have become much more well-known and practiced and understood and written about and researched about in recent years. You know, so there is quite a helpful backlash against all of this and people looking at things in a different way. We know as well that trying to force your body to conform to a certain shape, which doesn't fit with your build or genetics, and then involves eating in a way that disrupts your relationship with food, is absolutely detrimental to mental and physical well-being. And do diets work anyway? Now, I think for most of us, we've probably all been on a diet at some point, and Often in the beginning, diets can work. We have that honeymoon period, and it might have even been for months or even years, the honeymoon period, where everything seemed to be going really well, where you felt in control, where you felt that other people were validating you, you felt that you 
ticked all those boxes and you had sort of found the holy grail of, I don't know, eating, looking after your body, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that for most people, diets don't work in a sustainable way. They offer that short-term hit of weight loss. And we often do look back to that stage through rose-tinted glasses. And we, we try to recapture the honeymoon period again and again. But we know that half of all dieters put on even more weight than they've lost. And you're also extremely high risk of developing disordered eating behaviors along the way as you push your body into a state of starvation and deprivation. And only three to 5% of people who diet have kept the weight off one year on. So it's quite mind blowing when we really look at the statistics. And of course, once you start dieting, you just start to lose trust with your body. Dieting disrupts your ability to trust your body. And when you start dieting, you exchange the automatic internal regulators of appetite for conscious mental ones. You're no longer listening to your body, but following external rules. You teach yourself to stop responding to hunger cues, ignoring the I'm hungry and let's stop eating messages. And when you stop dieting, breaking it temporarily or for good, you run the risk of rebound eating as the internal guide of hunger and fullness cues has been ignored for so long. So I think it's so hard, isn't it? Like if you've been dieting for a long time, you can't just like cross the river easily back to the other side to that non-dieting place because you have lost trust with your body. You've lost trust with those internal hunger and fullness cues. You are a bit at sea with it all. And you're so used to relying on something external to tell you what you can and can't eat and how much and how many grams, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really hard to know, you know, what does my body want? So the tricky thing with dieting is it does change your relationship with food. Probably pre-dieting won't be true for everybody, but you may have been a lot more food neutral. You may not have thought about food. You may not have been preoccupied with food. Food may have been something that was fuel, pleasurable, but in the background of your life rather than this thing that you were excessively preoccupied with. But when you start dieting, you tend to get powerful urges to eat. You get excessive preoccupation with food, feelings of being out of control around food and loss of recognition of internal hunger cues. And research has shown that if you put dieters in front of a buffet, dieters will eat as much as they possibly can in front of a buffet because they feel like they're losing control. They've got to make the most of having all these lovely foods and because the diet will start tomorrow. Whereas if you put people that are non-dieters in front of a buffet, they're much more likely to eat their hunger and fullness cues because they haven't got that fear of deprivation and the fact that they're going to have to start the diet tomorrow. They know that all these foods are available to them at any point. Now, when I'm talking here, we are probably, well, I'm often thinking as well about more extreme diets when people are on very low calorie limits, missing meals, maybe cutting out food groups, things that are perhaps a bit more obviously diety or restrained around food. But I think something I've been reflecting on recently, I'm working with several people at the moment who are struggling with bulimia or chewing and spitting or binge eating disorder. And they probably in nearly all the instances of the people I'm working with, 
they have had periods in the past where they have been what I would call doing more extreme dieting. But they've made some really great progress along the recovery road and they are now much more relaxed around food. However, they are probably still being a bit too restrictive. So there are probably still some rules around food. There's probably still quite a lot of anxiety around eating certain foods and certain foods will definitely still be seen as good or bad. But these rules are probably a lot more subtle. And I think sometimes people just aren't even aware that the rules exist because of, they think, well, I'm not dieting anymore because of, you know, I'm not doing that crazy plan that I was doing before. But actually, when you start to dig a bit deeper, you realize that perhaps the person is binging on certain foods or chewing and spitting on certain foods that they would never allow in their normal daily eating pattern. I guess, again, that is a bit problematic when you are recovering from an eating disorder, because when you have that sort of dichotomous thinking around foods, good foods, bad foods, healthy or unhealthy foods, you're going to be massively at risk of exhibiting disordered eating patterns around the foods that you deem as forbidden or seductive or things that you should avoid. So I'm just kind of saying that for you to just be reflective, be very curious and compassionate with yourself and just to notice, actually, am I still being a bit restrictive? Because of sometimes it can be quite subtle, but if you are slipping into binge eating, if you are chewing and spitting, it might be that that is going on for you. Okay, right, I'm now going to talk a bit more about the impact of dieting on humans and how it can drive us a bit crazy. So I'm sure so many of you will have heard of the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. The Minnesota Experiment offers remarkable insights into the impact of starvation on the human body. Now, thankfully, it wouldn't be ethical to conduct this experiment today, but it's referred to regularly to help us understand how food restriction affects human beings. Now, if anyone wants to go and read up on this extensively, I believe it's in the Biology of Human Starvation Research Journal in 1950. So I'm going to just do a summarized version of this now, but Google it, do go and look it up in the Biology of Human Starvation if you really want to do a deep dive in here. So the Minnesota Starvation Study was conducted by a guy called Ansel Keys. It was done post-war when we were very worried about having world food shortages, you know, where food was rationed, etc. So Ansel Keys wanted to know what would happen if we experienced world worldwide even food shortages and what would happen to humans if they faced, you know, starvation. So he advertised for people to come forward and take part in the study and 200 conscientious objectors volunteered as an alternative to war and Keyes and his team of researchers whittled this down to 36 men. The men, all aged 20 to 33 years, were chosen for their physical and mental resilience. So the results... 1,385 pages in total, and I have to confess I have not read this, was published in the Biology of Human Starvation in 1950. So it was a year-long experiment. Firstly, there was a control period to just determine how much the men were eating kind of normally prior to the experiment. 
And they found out they were eating 3,210 calories a day. And they were pretty active as well. I guess kind of back in the day as well, people were generally a bit more active compared to our more sedentary lives today. They then had, the control period was 12 weeks. They then had a starvation period of 24 weeks. And in the starvation period, very interestingly, the calorie limit that the men had during that period was 1,600 calories per day. And um, it's quite interesting as well, isn't it? Because I think many of the crazy diets that we are shown and that are advertised to us today are lower than that. So it just, this is quite interesting because when you just sort of hear about the results from the study, you'll just see, even for the men to sort of halve their calories in the way that they did, it was massively, massively impactful. So I guess you can just see as well with some of these kind of like crazier diets that we have today, it's gonna be even more impactful. And then they had sort of a rehabilitation period. So firstly, a restricted rehabilitation period for the men, and then a period where the men were able to eat freely. So it was a fascinating study because one thing to really remember from this as well is the men did not have eating disorders, but they were starved. So we're looking at human starvation here. Also, these men were not exposed to all the media all the different triggers that we have today. You know, it was very, very different sort of cultural environment back then. So what happened when the men were starved? They found that hunger was comparable with war in terms of the devastating impact it had on humans. Many of the volunteers came to believe that military service would have been an easier option than their chosen path. So Ansel Keys put 36 physically and mentally healthy men on a calorie-controlled diet, with a moderate amount of exercise, and in a matter of weeks, he turned them into physical and emotional wrecks. Physically, the men reported incessant hunger, weakness, exhaustion, and they lost 21% of their strength in the first 12 weeks alone. They experienced dizziness, muscle wasting, hair loss, and reduced coordination, and several withdrew from their university classes because they simply didn't have the energy or motivation to attend. Psychologically, the men became obsessed with food, meal times, and everything to do with eating, and a number became chefs after the experiment. Such was their interest in food. And I can just think as well, like so many of my clients that are, you know, adopting restrictive eating patterns end up often wanting to work in cafes, working around food and restaurants, baking all the time. It's a sure sign often that someone is really deprived and wanting to be kind of near food and think about food, be obsessed with food the whole time. So with the men, before the buddy system was put in place, a couple did get hold of some forbidden food and binge and they suffered extreme guilt and self-loathing as a result. Again, I think this is fascinating because of, again, they didn't have eating disorders, but it shows just kind of what naturally will happen when the human body is starved. The men as well reported extreme depression, irritability, a sense of deprivation, and they lost all interest in sex. And they actually lost all interest in anything other than food, such as the human drive to overcome hunger. So I think hearing about this experiment as well and hearing about that preoccupation with food and the physical and mental effects it has on you is so helpful just to realize that actually if you're experiencing some of these symptoms, it's probably down to restrictive eating. And it's really so validating to hear that because I think sometimes we can start to think, actually, it's just me 
there's something wrong with me, that I'm just really obsessed with food, that I can't stop thinking about food, that other people are so much more peaceful around food, what is wrong with me? But, you know, hearing about the study, it's very validating because we know that when the human beings are starved, these are natural consequences. And the fantastic thing, and I'm going to talk about this more in a minute, is that actually, though, we can come out of this and things can be reversed. So in the rehabilitation period, the men were given different additional calories, and some of the men were given as well additional vitamin and protein supplements. But Ansel Keys concluded that the only thing that determined the speed at which the men recovered was the calorie intake. So the body didn't respond to vitamins or protein particularly, it just wanted the energy, the calorie deficit to be reversed. I think again, this is quite helpful to hear as well, because I think sometimes we can feel that there is a perfect way to recover, there's a perfect meal plan to follow. If we're following the exact kind of macronutrient ratio or whatever, that we're going to recover in the best way possible. And of course, it's helpful to eat in a balanced way, but I think there is no perfect way. Your body just wants to reverse the calorie deficit. It just wants to have the energy, okay? So it can be no surprise, therefore, that when the men were given free access to food, some of them did overeat and binge to correct the calorie deficit they had suffered. And I think, again, just to sort of really say, it's very, very normal. You know, as human beings, we are built for survival, And it's a really, really normal thing that, you know, if we've deprived ourselves that almost the elastic band has to ping back the other way, we have to kind of, we sort of compensate, you know, we offer often needing to kind of like eat more, you know, and eat larger quantities just to kind of get back to a healthier place. But it's not going to be like that forever. You know, with the men as well, they came out the other side of this. Some of them did continue to have some issues with eating for some time after the experiment. But actually, they managed to weight restore. They got kind of got back to a kind of healthy place and the impact was temporary. So again, it's just reassuring to know in a way that recovery can be a messy old bumpy old road and your appetite, your hunger, your fullness, everything's going to be out of sync when you're in that kind of messy in-between period. But you kind of have to go through that to get to the other side. The only way out is through And it is so worth it though, because what's the alternative that you're going to be holding yourself in a place where you are massively preoccupied with food, at risk of binging, feeling tired, exhausted, all the physical and emotional effects, it's just not worth it. Interestingly as well, men who had previously shown no awareness of body size and image reported sort of feeling body dissatisfaction. So again, it's really interesting because again, these men were not in a culture where thinness was really being promoted. So something happens to the human brain in terms of like body perception when we lose weight. So that's just really interesting to know as well. And we do tend to find, I know many people I've worked with that actually, you know, body image can be a really difficult area, but actually the more weight restored you become, the more you are taking good nutrition, the more your brain is working in a healthy way, the body image concerns often do reduce. Whereas actually when you're really, really underweight and when you're really deprived, when you're in that kind of really rigid and all or nothing mindset, your body image is often a lot worse. So I'm now going to change direction slightly and talk a bit about why over-evaluation of our shape and weight as a measure of our worth is so problematic. And in our culture, 
it's almost become quite normalized, hasn't it? That weight, shape, body image, it can form a huge part of our self-worth and our identity. And I guess in the culture we live in, it's probably unrealistic that these things are never going to matter to us at all. But what would be helpful, I think for most of us, is that they only take up a proportion of our worth and they are not like the main way that we try and derive self-worth because it's really, really hard to win when you put so much focus on that. So when you primarily focus on weight goals or body aesthetics, your self-worth becomes linked to your ability to achieve these goals. So your ability to follow a diet, achieve a number on the scales, it will become the way that you feel good about yourself. So if you are sticking perfectly to the plan or if the scales are going down, you feel good. If you are not sticking to those goals, you don't feel good at all. Now, the person without disordered eating and who has a healthy relationship with her body will probably have more balance in their life even (laughs) of, you know, having a balance of different variables that make up their self-worth. So if we think about two pie charts, the person without disordered eating, the person that has sort of healthy healthy balance of deriving worth from a lot of different areas, if they were going to draw out a pie chart, they may have like a segment for friends, a segment for hobbies, a segment for career or study. They might have a segment in there for how they look. And they might have a segment in there for spirituality, a segment in there for activity. I don't know, could be many, many different things. And there is no right or wrong way to have your pie chart. Every human being is going to be slightly individual. But I guess it's quite healthy as a human being to derive your worth from lots and lots of different things. And to kind of just feel generally, actually, I'm okay, I'm good enough. It's not all down to me achieving things all the time. Whereas someone with an eating disorder or disordered eating, they're drawing their pie chart out, probably food, weight, shape, it's going to take up 85, 90% maybe of the pie chart and then other life areas. So things like family, friends, hobbies, career, etc. are going to be crammed in to a much smaller segment of the pie chart. So as you can see, is putting a lot of pressure on controlling food, controlling weight as a way to feel good. And that is pretty, pretty difficult to achieve. So what you might even want to do is grab a pen and paper, pause this podcast just for a moment, and draw out your own self-worth pie chart. Draw out how you think it looks now. Think about the different segments. Think about, you know, where are all the different areas of your life that you derive your self-worth from? And then draw a second pie chart and think, actually, how would I like it to be? Because of this is quite a good way to do a bit more of a zoom out on our life to actually recognize, okay, what's going on now? How would I like it to be? And it can be quite motivating as well for change, because I think sometimes when we're in the tunnel of an eating disorder, it's really hard to see wood for the trees to get your head above water but actually when you start to think about zooming out a bit more and you think about actually where is this all taking me and how am I spending my time and where am I getting my worth from if you see a bit of a clash maybe in your 
values, the things that are really important to you, and then how you're actually genuinely spending your time and what you're doing, it can help you make a bit of a shift. It can help you take a bit of a step back. Because I think most people caught in an eating disorder may be spending, you know, 80, 90% focusing on food and weight and body image. But actually, if you really ask them in the cold light of day, is that what you want to be doing? Most people probably say no. But when they think about kind of making a change with that, like this afternoon, tomorrow, in the short term, it feels really, really scary. So again, do that exercise, but with curiosity and compassion because of, and there's no right way to have a pie chart, but it can be helpful for you just to be reflecting on where are you getting your worth from now. So when you are putting so much value on controlling your weight and shape as a means of deriving worth, it's so, so hard to succeed. It's difficult to ever feel thin enough or to be sticking well enough almost to the rigid eating plan. And chasing food or weight as primary evaluators of self-worth tend to encourage eating disorder behaviours. Because life has become restricted and narrow as the preoccupation with food becomes intense. And it prevents you living life and engaging in a wide range of activities, interests or relationships that could genuinely improve your life quality. The focus instead gets drilled down to your ability to adhere to your plan. And it's so hard to win at this constantly, consistently. And I know many, many people that are caught up in this cycle had a kind of goal in mind that they wanted to reach. And they thought, when I get to X weight or whatever, X number of calories or whatever on the plan, I'm going to feel good enough. What happens? You get to that point, the goalposts move, you don't feel good enough. It's always a bit out of reach. And actually, the more you restrict, the more you get all those mental and physical costs. And actually, you don't feel good anyway. You're pretty miserable because you're kind of cold. You can't concentrate. You feel withdrawn. You don't want to socialize. You're kind of a bit of a shell of yourself, really. So Dr. Christopher Fairburn, actually, I think he's a professor now. Professor Christopher Fairburn talks about viewing the world through your eating problems, sunglasses, when you're in this place, when you're in this like disordered eating place, focusing so much on worth and weight. And he says that we all view the world in an individual and unique way. And we all have a slightly distorted view of reality based on our personal life experiences. But if you have your eating disorder sunglasses on, you know, so linked when your worth is so linked to eating and weight, you're noticing the size, shape and body of others, especially those thinner than you. You strive for the perfect diet. You can be overly restricted with eating. You spend an abnormal amount of time thinking about food. You're constantly aware of small changes in your body. And you're extremely critical of yourself when you're not conforming to the rules you set yourself. So you can see it's really, really hard to win. But Fairburn talks about being able to take the sunglasses off and look at the world in a different way. And that can feel phenomenally challenging to do that because of it's almost like you are on a certain path with all these beliefs and ways of looking at things. And even thinking about looking at things in a different way can be hugely challenging. But it's just a helpful first step to realize, you know, some of this is a perspective and a mindset and I'm stuck in this right now, but maybe there could be different ways of thinking about this. And it's not, it might not feel possible right now. However, it's helpful to realize that you can begin to adopt a different perspective. You can begin to dilute the eating disorder thoughts, and you can begin to consider that there may be a different viewpoint. 
And this opens the door to the possibility of change. So it gives that little kind of glimmer of hope. It offers that little kind of crack in the door, crack to the, the door to recovery and for things to change. And I like to sometimes think about diluting the eating disorder sunglasses. because I think it's pretty hard, isn't it, just to suddenly take them off when you've been looking at the world in that way for such a long time. But starting to dilute them. And again, you know, over time, little changes do add up to a great deal of change. So it's not about trying to overhaul this whole mindset and look at things differently in the next few weeks. It's engaging with the long game and realizing profoundly how much change we can make when we look at this in the bigger kind of picture and we think about perhaps how much change we can make in a year. So have a think about, are you wearing eating disorder sunglasses at the moment? Maybe you are, maybe you are sometimes, maybe you're not. Maybe you feel like you're out the other side of all of that. But I think again, it's helpful just to reflect on how much you are linking your self-worth with how you look and considering that there could be another way to think about this. And I truly appreciate that this can be phenomenally hard, I can't say the word, phenomenally hard to change this to begin with. But even beginning to question it and to be curious and compassionate with yourself, that is opening a doorway to change. Now, something else now to help you think about how you're influenced by diet culture and what may be triggering you and keeping you locked in this tunnel. So I think we are so inundated with so many messages every day. So it could be on social media, We could be getting diets into our emails and into our inbox. We could be watching something on TV when someone's being interviewed. We could hear about a new celebrity wellness plan. They are everywhere. It's really, really hard to get away from hearing about all this stuff. And you probably just got friends and family maybe who are always dieting or talking about it, etc. And when you're in recovery, sometimes you have to really take quite a brave step to get into your own recovery lane put the blinkers on, put the earplugs in to all the diet culture talks that's going on around you because maybe your family member is never going to stop dieting and going on the next wellness plan and talking about how many pounds they've lost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that can change is for you to start to have a different relationship to all of this, to start to realize actually that is not the lane I want to be walking in anymore. I'm on a different path now. I want to have a peace relationship with food. I want to value like other things. And that could still be kind of valuing your health and having a peaceful relationship with food. But you're stepping into a different zone where you are not going to be dieting, where you're not going to be scrutinizing your body in the same way and beating yourself up as you have been. So think about for you where your diet culture triggers are. So could it be talking to people at work maybe about the latest diet? So maybe joining in that conversation or being triggered by it. Could it be scrolling social media, seeing like incredibly lean influences promoting their restrictive eating plan? Could it be looking at eating disorder accounts where people are clearly struggling? Could it be having diet books lining your shelves? Could it be watching TV programs about losing weight or promoting weight loss as a good thing? Could it be about reading articles in magazines that promote unhealthy practices around food? So to reject diet mentality, you need to start cutting some of these things out of your life or reducing them as a first step. 
And you might need to be ruthless as once you're aware of diet culture, you probably notice it popping up everywhere. So have a reflect, really notice where are you getting triggered? We all have our own personal triggers, which can really knock us on track, which can really activate eating disorder behaviors, which can be really seductive sometimes because of, it can almost be like a kind of wolf in sheep's clothing. It doesn't, you know, it seems like a kind of wellness plan or it seems like a celebrity who's just being really cool and healthy or something when actually there's a lot more going on under the surface. So really notice the personal triggers for you. You might want to kind of keep a little kind of diet culture triggering diary and just notice where you get a bit knocked sideways during the week. Because this is something as well that you can have some power over, can feel empowered so you get in your own recovery lane and to be less influenced by all this toxic stuff. I know for me, I just avoid all this stuff and I try and fill my brain with other things that really inspire and interest me. You know, massively into personal development, I like going traveling, I like going on adventures, I like reading or scrolling about those things. I don't want to read about diets or food or wellness. It just doesn't interest me. So you need to think for you, how can you expand your interest in other areas? What's really important to you? Think about your personal pie chart. How do you want to be evaluating your worth? How can you diminish the focus on weight and control of food as a means of deriving your self-worth? And just notice where you're really being triggered because you've probably got some quite maybe obvious triggers, but also more subtle triggers that are knocking you off track. Okay, well, I hope you have enjoyed this episode and it's given you some different things to think about. And yes, I will be back again next week with another guest. I have several guests lined up over the next few weeks. So you can look forward to those episodes. So if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. And I know so many of you send me lovely, 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 lovely email messages. I so appreciate that. If you feel that you would like to write me a review as well for the podcast, I would massively appreciate that too. It just really helps it get up the podcast charts. Not the numbers are the most important thing, but it just, it means that more people can be helped, more people can listen and hopefully feel inspired about recovery and change and what is possible. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm